The Guardian. Hello, I'm John Plunkett and welcome to Media Talk. On this week's show, five newspaper groups break ranks and propose their own press regulator. BBC Director General Tony Hall faces MPs for the first time and reveals more details on Panorama, his proposal for a new cap on payoffs at the corporation, and talks about the ding-dong at Radio 1. Plus, smart girls get less as more magazine is to close after 25 years. This is Media Talk from The Guardian. Joining me today is the broadcaster and former editor of Heat Magazine, Sam Delaney, and in a first for the Media Talk podcast, the editor of Broadcast Magazine, Lisa Campbell. Welcome both. (laughs) How are you? Great, thank you, yes. Been enjoying the sun? Not right now, but previously? No, been watching Lord Hall for many hours. Giving evidence to the select Mm. committee, about which possibly more later. Sam, excited? Tremendously so. Good news. We start this week, surprise, surprise, with press regulation. Now, there's a first for media talk. At the time of recording, five major publishers. It was three, but it's been scribbled out, and now it says five. That's how quickly the news is changing. News International, Telegraph Media Group, uh, Trinity Mirror, Express Newspapers, and Associated Newspapers, who of course own the Daily Mail and much else besides, have drawn up their own draft royal charter. They hope it will remove the logjam which has been caused by the press's opposition to the government's own proposals. Earlier, I caught up with Lisa O'Carroll to ask what the new charter is and why have they done it. They have done it purely because they disagreed and opposed the government charter, which was agreed um, early morning um, meeting in Ed Miliband's office, do you remember, on March the 18th, which was controversial because Hacktoff were involved. So anyway, the big three already made it clear that they were considering boycotting a government-backed regulator and would go it on their own. So today they threw a curveball into the situation completely and came up with a royal charter of their own. So they're going to the Privy Council and they have written the clauses which they think will remove the objectionable bits and are hoping to get political backing for it. So what are the key ways in which this royal charter or this proposed system of regulation differs from the proposal that the government hammered out? Yeah, the whole problem with the royal charter is is it is inherently um, vulnerable to political interference. A charter can only be amended by the Privy Council, which is essentially the Cabinet Office. So Oliver Letwin came up with this great wheeze, which would, he thought, address this, and came up with a system where a royal charter could only be changed if it had two-thirds majority in the House of Commons and the House of Lords. Their alternative scraps that completely and has come up with a triple-lock system, whereby a royal charter could only be changed by unanimous approval of three separate bodies, a recognition body which the government will set up, to audit the performance of the press regulator every three years. It would also have to be backed by a unanimous decision by the regulatory board itself and four industry bodies. So what happens next? Well, the newspaper industry hoped that this late development would break the logjam, shift the impasse, but that's yet to be seen. The government are indicating, Labour's indicating that they've got their own royal charter, they're sticking with that. And let's not forget, Labour have threatened quite recently to look at statutory regulation of newspapers if the newspaper industry don't get into line and behave. Parliament, of course, today was being prorogued, end of parliamentary business. I don't think any politicians will have an appetite for this to overshadow the Queen's speech, and we'll see from Patrick Winter and Nick Watt what the lay of the land is. That was Lisa O'Carroll there. Lisa, um, Peter Wright from Associated Newspapers was on Radio 4 on Thursday talking about the proposals. 
And he said it was a good idea to get the ball rolling, but conceded that no editor has actually signed up on the specifics. Do you think they will? Well, I think the big question is whether it's independent self-regulation, which Leveson made a big point about. That really is crucial. I mean, is this genuinely independent, robust alternative, or is it a cosy boys club where, you know, they're acting out of self-interest rather than for the greater good of the public? Just PCC Mark II, effectively, yeah. Sam, what do you make of it? Um, as I suggested earlier on, you know, we, we, we got one chart and now we've got two charters. It just sort of, uh, uh, it just feels like a giant mess. Well, you're right. It sounds like PCC Mark II because if they've got the power of veto for who sits on it, they effectively can make sure that it's their own board of people and people who understand. That's not necessarily a bad thing. I know everyone laughs about the PCC and says it was just like a kind of a useless supply teacher, kind of politely asking the kids to stop fighting. But, beautifully put, Sam. when I was an editor, I remember being quite scared and embarrassed when one of the regular PCC rulings came against me. Because, it, you know, it wasn't like you just laughed it off. I mean, obviously it needs to be more robust, but it's not necessarily a bad thing if there are people who are sympathetic to the press on their regulatory board. However, the likelihood is it will never go through because, as Lisa says, independence was the key word that Leveson used and this clearly will not be an independent body and therefore it's got no chance. And, and the hacked off um, group are clearly unhappy with this, and uh, and I think you know, and, and not surprisingly, and then you know the shocking story today as well about the Surrey police and the um, collective amnesia over the phone hacking. So you know, the, I, I think that's just you know really really adds weight to the argument that something really needs to be done because even when the police knew back in two thousand and two, they did absolutely nothing about it. You know, and and there were no consequences of that. So the um, deputy chief constable of Surrey Police is just having some words of advice. Um, you know, on the back of that. So um, I think it's quite disgraceful, really. I would say though that Surrey Police collective amnesia thing. Why didn't they point it out? I think. Put yourself in the position of the police involved in that investigation. They're investigating the murder of a child, the disappearance and murder of a child. The fact that along the way, in the course of investigating this matter, the fact arises that her voicemail might have been hacked at some point, perhaps by a journalist, is way down the list of things that you are preoccupied with. So, of course, they haven't made a big deal out of it because what they're investigating is a million times more important. As much as it would have been good had it come to light earlier... I don't think we can point the finger of blame at the police for not bringing, making a big deal out of it at the time. Well, maybe not first up, but you kind of think in the in the, in the years that followed, or, or, or certainly when there was when the News of the World said that uh, you know that the hacking of the royal phones was a, down to a single rogue reporter, you'd have thought maybe people would have gone, oh yeah, I remember back in two thousand and two. I think police aren't following the news about the media as closely as we are, and they're just on to the next thing. And it was a, it would have been a small matter in the scheme of things when they were working on the Millie Dowler case. And Sam, this, this wouldn't be a public service broadcast if I didn't ask you what the uh, PCC uh, adjudication against Heat magazine, as edited by Delaney, was. Oh, sir. my goodness. Can you, Where can you remember? I start? I remember one about... <laughs> Just give us one, anyway. There was some spurious thing about Kylie Minogue being on an only drinking water diet, something like that. Fair enough. I mean, she complains to BCC. Who can blame her? All right, well, <laughs> time to move on now to the other big story of the week, which was the new Director-General Tony Hall, who faced the Commons Culture, Media and Sports Select Committee for the first time this week, alongside his chairman, another lord, Chris Patton. Hall was philosophical in his tenure so far, all three weeks of it, conceding that Panorama should have uh, probably got uh, written consent from all the LSE students who uh, travelled with John Sweeney to North Korea, lots of controversy around that. 
he also spoke about the Pollard inquiry and uh, was forced to defend uh, the fact that Helen Bowden, much criticised in the Pollard report, uh, was still at the BBC, this time in charge of radio instead of news, uh, despite all the criticism she got over the Savile saga. Uh, Lisa, there's a couple of headlines there, but w- what did you make of his performance? I thought he was, he was great. He was self-assured. He was relaxed and unflappable and well-prepared. Uh, in many ways, I think he acted as a politician. You know, he, he acknowledged some of the criticism and, and some of the failings and you know, said there were lessons to learn and then he moved on to the points he wanted to talk about. He was in quite a good position because anything tricky, he could then fall back on the, well, having only been here three and a half weeks, blah, blah. But he was um, complete opposite to his predecessor, I think, in the way he handled himself. Um, I also think it was really clever having something to announce you know, t- taking along this, you know, announcement that there'll be a hundred and fifty thousand cap on severance pay, when that is such a bone of contention amongst MPs and, and amongst the public. So he, you know, he had a positive message to deliver. So I think it was a really good performance. He came bearing gifts, indeed. Um, <laughs> and this this proposed hundred and fifty grand cap that's, that's in the wake of controversy around uh, the payouts that have gone to people like Caroline Thompson and Mark Byford, who all got what uh, in the region of half a million, maybe more, that mm. sort of figure when they've left the BBC. Yeah, scandalous. Um, and what did you make? I mentioned there in the intro, he also said uh, he sort of conceded that the BBC had made mistakes with regard to the, uh, the, the, this controversial uh, North Korea film, uh, which went out in the panorama uh, yeah. last week. Yeah, I, I think, you know, accepting that there needed to be written consent, you know, was, was the right thing to do because as he said they wouldn't be in this sort of ding dong now he had the confidence in those around him you know they did the risk assessment and the risk assessment team said you know the greatest risk was of deportation lives weren't at risk and if they had have been they wouldn't have gone ahead with it so you know I I think he was very convincing about the reasons that they pursued this uh, method in the beginning and then also very confident about you know, how they were going to move on from it and how they were going to learn from it. So I think sort of, you know, holding his hands up, we're going to learn, we're going to talk to the academic institutions, we're going to talk to universities about how we move on from this and and make sure we work on this uh, for the future. So, uh, you know, that was good. I think the Helen Bowden was the tricky, most tricky for him in a way because, you know, all of the MPs were, were sort of having a go at that. The fact that Helen Bowden has been shunted sideways, even though hugely criticised in the Pollard report and it's caused a lot of anxiety within the BBC about how right that is and and also outside the BBC and so I think the one thing I would would criticise Lord Hall for is is sort of saying well she suffered public humiliation as if that's um, anything I mean you know really if if, you know if I ask my mum has Helen Bowden been sufficiently humiliated? She'd say, who's Helen Bowden? I mean, really, that... It wasn't as bad as all that, was (laughs) it? So she moves into a head of radio with a big fat £350,000 salary and pension and and everything else. And if his whole point is about the culture at the top needs to change, whereby senior managers aren't taking responsibility and are passing the buck, then that really doesn't, doesn't follow on from that, does it? Sam, Tony Hall, what do you make of him so far? Well, I didn't see it, but I've heard the things that he said. And uh, I think there's two different things. There's whether the things he said were true and right or whether he had a good performance. And the two things are separate, aren't they? Because he, he, he made a good performance by being kind of contrite and humble and holding his hands up, as Lisa said. you know. And therefore, people will go, well done, and he won't come under much scrutiny or pressure over the coming weeks, at least. He didn't say anything that was kind of fair. I mean, of course there shouldn't be a 150 grand cap on you know severance payments you know he didn't have to apologize for as much as he did and yet 
if you want to make a good performance and take the heat off yourself and not be the next fella to be sacked after just 56 days, then you have to turn up and say sorry for pretty much everything you're accused of. You're doing and in, it was a disservice, it was 54. In, yeah, OK, 54. <laughs> but in that sense, he played a blinder. What did you make of this? Uh, he touched on the Ding Dong Radio 1 chart furore as well. Uh, what, yeah. what did you make of that, uh, Fudge? Well, I listened to it back. And I thought that the fact that they felt the need to contextualise it was the funniest thing about it. The charts for a long, long time, for decades, has just been, here are the songs that have sold the most this this year, and they can just play them. They don't contextualise the rest of the records. They don't say, oh, this is One Direction, and by the way, they were formed out of X Factor, and they were a load of disparate acts that were put together just to give you background. It was the only record ever that has been played with a load of context spoken about it beforehand. They should have just played it for 20 seconds. All the kids listening would have been a bit confused and then just moved on to find out what was at number one. It was strange all round, the way that the BBC handled it. I don't know what Tony Hall said about it. Well, you know, I thought it was weird that they played the... I know it only got to number 31 or whatever and didn't make the same kind of publicity, but the the pro sort of Thatcher campaign song, which briefly flickered, you know, what was it, I'm in love with Margaret Thatcher or something, like a punk song. I mean, that got played, the full thing. Clearly, it's not got any offensive lyrics or whatever, but there was no context for that, and I'm sure that would have had the kids, you know, who I'm down with. Uh, They'd have been scratching their heads saying, well, wait a minute, what's this song? You know, I'm crying out for some context. Where's the news item? There is no need to explain the existence of any pop song in the charts. Just play the song and say who it's by. And Lord Hall was, as I said, accompanied by uh, BBC Trust chairman Lord Patton today. And I've got to say, he looked in a good mood. He looked very happy to have Lord Hall alongside him. I know. I I think actually, you know, he did make a remark about being on his best behaviour. Wasn't as entertaining as usual, having said that. He was very, you know, I quite enjoy his ridiculous pomposity and the fact he sits there really grumpily uh, suffering these questions that you know, how dare people do that. and yeah he was he was towing the line wasn't he I, th- I don't know if someone's had a quiet word in his ear because I think he was you know it was a terrible performance that he put in at Pollard you know post Pollard so I think he'd he'd learnt a lesson after that really they both look very well prepped they did I get on the same bus as him because he lives in the same area as he me he gets a bus he gets a bus to work I mean I don't know now he's probably at New Broadcasting House but when he was still at White City he got the same bus. There's a bus that goes from outside my house down to White City and we'd be crammed onto a single decker every morning and I would look at what he was reading and it was during the whole scandal and he would very often be on the cover of the newspaper that he was reading, reading the story about. So it was fascinating. Just fascinating, isn't it, to get on the bus with someone who's in the news and watch him reading about it. Yeah. And fair play to him on his salary to be keeping it real and getting the bus every morning. Man of the people. Indeed. Yeah. What, what bus route was that, Sam? This is the 30... No, this is the 209. 209. Barnes to White City. Does it go by the Wetland Centre? It it does, yeah. Oh, lovely. And who knows, on the way home, he might get off early and have a little waltz around there. I wouldn't be surprised. It's very good for lap wings. Yeah. Could listen to some birds. Yeah, Yeah, more of that later. Mm. Right. (laughs) (laughs) What a link. This week on The Guardian Audio Edition. Why does America lose its head over terror but ignore its daily gun deaths. Stephen Lawrence, 20 years on. I thought there was nothing I could do. To mark the publication of Granter's new list of best young British novelists, five of the shortlisted authors reflect on the experience of having their work read as audiobooks and of reading their own work to audiences. To subscribe for free to The Guardian Audio Edition, go to audible.co.uk forward slash guardian or find us on soundcloud itunes and audioboo the guardian audio edition 
a new way to get the whole picture. Uh, right, uh, uh, elsewhere in this week of media news, uh, it says here, smart girls get less. Uh, what can this mean? Um, yes, it's the news that More Magazine, oh, it sounds like I've got news for you, but without the gags or, or people you've heard of, but, <laughs> apart from Sam and Lisa. Uh, More Magazine is to close after 25 years. The weekly teen mag was infamous for its position of the week. Uh, which, uh, insert gag here, typical for a magazine that pushed the boundaries of what a teenager should be reading, or shouldn't if you're their parents. At its peak in the late 90s, it had 300,000 readers, but recently its uh, circulation had dropped to less than 100,000. What we need here is uh, some kind of former magazine editor with experience. Oh, Sam, mm-hmm. what happened to more? Well, it's a shame, and, and it's interesting that, that you say that about more, because you know, the pressure that magazine editors often come under, people who edit magazines, that you know, appeal to young ladies in particular is, you know, you've got social responsibility. Like there was all this discussion this week about um, cosmetic surgery and how magazines are to blame and blah, blah, blah. And you're there, you're sat in the editor's chair and all you care about really is shifting issues and being entertaining enough to shift issues. And actually the social responsibility factor, the truth is it's low down on your list of priorities because you see yourself as part of an entertainment industry. And usually, actually, if you if you edit a magazine like Heat, for example, or, or you could name numerous others, you kind of think, oh God, the moment we start trying to kind of be socially responsible and, and give mess- worthy messages, we will, by definition, make this magazine more boring, less entertaining and sell less copies, more in its heyday or actually throughout its existence, was one of the few magazines who managed to combine the two brilliantly. It was doing something that was very entertaining and simultaneously responsible, socially responsible, educating its readers whilst also entertaining them. Uh, a compelling magazine that also kind of steered their viewpoint on their lives. And, and therefore it was brilliant. And actually, you know, it's nothing to do with its content or it being outdated, that it, it you know, its, it's circulation went down. It was the same reason that all magazines circulation is going downhill is that magazines are kind of you know in free fall because of the internet so it's a real shame they're a talented team the editor in particular Chantel Halton was is one of the best magazine editors out there and is very highly regarded by Bauer magazine so you'll see her somewhere else very senior soon. Lisa are you, are you going to mourn more? Not personally no I mean I, I wonder at the is, is this the impact of the Mail Online? I mean, you know, that's that's where everyone's going for their yeah. celebrity gossip and here's a bit of cellulite you might not have seen before, yeah, that kind of thing. I mean, is 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 that the main reason? Do you think? Yeah, yeah, the internet is really what's put in pay to all magazines, particularly ones that were about gossip because, you know, gossip moves so much faster that you're desperately outmoded now. And, uh, you know, more like a lot of magazines would have sold itself on the cover by the gossip but then also delivered much more on the inside. But, you know, that's neither here or or there now because the gossip can't sell anymore because it seems so out of date, and it is disastrously out of date. However, you know, it was still selling all right. It's a well-established brand, and you you might think that that Bauer would think about kind of, you know, maximising, utilising that brand, you know, in a broader sense than just the magazine and not panic the moment that there's a dip in sales of the magazine and shut the whole thing down. Because if that's their policy, then in five years, I wonder how many magazines they'll have left in their portfolio. Yeah, it's weird in the sense that a magazine that still sells the thick end of 90,000 copies a week can't, isn't, isn't viable. And, and those magazines cost about 3p a copy to, to knock out, by the way. So I can't imagine that they're losing that much money. 
It's interesting what you say about trying to get that balance between celebrity and a bit of res- uh, social responsibility for, yeah. a, for a young audience. And I was on a panel when the, the government was running their sort of body image campaign and there were a lot of magazine editors there and who said it was it's really difficult to try and achieve that social responsibility, particularly about the size of models when fashion houses are sending you sample sizes of size four and if you ask for an eight or a ten then you know no way is that going to happen so that you know a lot of that they seem to suggest comes from the fashion and beauty industry Mm. I mean more was less of a fashion mag I mean that's something that is sort of a bigger pressure on the sort of fashion monthlies I mean the good thing about more or the other celeb weeklies is that what they do is show they their fashion features usually focus on celebrities of all different shapes and sizes wearing the gear and so, it, you know, they, they were under less that sort of pressure, I think. Well, farewell to more. But it's hello to a bunch of birds on Radio 4. Yes, more changes afoot at the uh, nation's favourite uh, talk radio station. Uh, if you can call Radio 4 Talk Radio, I think you can do that. Yeah, and uh, well, it could well be a new alarm clock for the nation. David Attenborough, Sir David Attenborough, will present a, a new early morning feature called Tweet of the Day. Just before the Today programme at 6am, Attenborough will showcase one of 265 bird songs from around Britain. That's one a day, every weekday, for well, the best part of a year. Now, a uh, former bird watcher, until uh, other responsibilities intruded, but, you know, still like to go out and, uh, as I mentioned before, Barnes Wetland Centre. Lisa, I think this is going to be a hit. What do you think? <laughs> I actually think that's a really lovely idea, yeah. It's, it's at 5.58 in the morning, isn't it? So you literally have to be up with the larks. To... Very good. Yeah, is. Um... is that the strap line? <laughs> yeah, so I, I think... Uh, Nice novelty idea, but um, I think it'll take off, really. It just seems, and I think all, all the calls, Sam, are going to be on, or the bird songs will be online, sort of, you know, forever, or until the internet goes pop. You know, I occasionally get CDs, as I mentioned my hobby, of all the bird songs on a CD, but you get kind of 200 songs in a row and you never really play it and you get confused, which you is which. You buy bird song on CD? Well, I tend to get them free with Sunday magazines, but uh, yeah, I have been known to do that. Yeah. Oh, wow. Did you know that Twit Twoo, that's not actually one owl, that's an owl speaking to another owl, so that's a, a massive common misconception. I love the fact that one of the... <laughs> Maybe that'll be featured. <laughs> How many songbirds are there in the UK? Well, uh, I think the uh, latest British list of birds, they're about, I, f- I forget actually. I reckon there's about 595. Is there? And that this show is going to showcase the nation's favourite 250. Yeah, at least. Okay, so it's obviously got a reality element to it, in which we kind of are all deciding what the best songbirds are. Big bird. Which I think would be a very good idea, you know. I love the fact that one of the experts has, has picked out one of, I don't know, some bird that lives by the sea or something, and describes the sound as like a fairy being sick. Which, oh yes, that's a storm you know, petrol. Is that it? Oh, course, right, you've heard yeah. that then. Yeah. Oh, yes. You often hear fairies being sick. It is just like a fairy being yeah. sick, yeah. 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 Um, there was a radio station, a digital radio station, that did this round the clock for a while. I don't know if it still exists. That's there was. Right, yeah. So effectively, they've nicked the idea. Yeah, the Birdsong radio station. Yeah, that was. Uh, I think they did that. That sort of filled in sort of empty capacity on uh, some digital radio multiplex somewhere. They just kind of filled it in, and it turned out to be very popular. Yeah, really popular, yeah. I'm told that these songs, you, you know, you, you think that you could identify the Blackbird song, but in fact they sing all different songs at different times of day, depending on where they are and who they're singing to. So in actual fact... Yeah, if it's Attenborough, they're really up their game. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, well, I'll see you down the Wetland Centre sometime soon. <laughs> This podcast is sponsored by Barnes Wetland Centre. <laughs> uh, well, on that note, I think on that melodious note, uh, Lisa and Sam, thank you very much. Are you an aspiring journalist or writer? The Guardian International Development Journalism Competition is your chance to win an assignment to Africa, Asia or South America. 
you'll write for The Guardian about the global development issues that face the area you visit. All you need to do is submit a short essay on one of the 12 diverse themes. You can find all the information you need at guardian.co.uk forward slash journalism competition. Enter now to win the work experience of a lifetime. Visit guardian.co.uk forward slash journalism competition. The deadline is midnight on Sunday the 12th of May. Terms and conditions apply. And for the final part of the show, I'm joined by Noshin Iqbal, who I should still call, I think, The Guardian's acting TV and radio editor. Is that right? Acting TV. Still doing radio, hopefully. Excellent, <laughs> excellent. Right, well, um, one big show came to an end this week, and one new show on ITV starts next week. Let's start with the new show, shall we? Why not? This is a, a new comedy um, called Vicious, with uh, um, a big-name cast. Yeah, McKellen and Jacoby. So the the running gag for all the headlines That's goes Ian that it's... Uh, sorry, Derek yeah, my Jacoby, mates. Just in case, my yes. mates, Ian and Derek. Two knights playing two queens is the general gag. And they're just partners in a studio sitcom, living together for about 50 years, bickering, fighting, making some quite droll jokes. It's kind of, you know, it's resolutely old-fashioned, isn't it? It really is an old-school sitcom in front of a studio audience. I think that's becoming quite fashionable now. And yeah, it's palatable after, uh, to huge audiences. Yeah, it's the 80s are back on comedy and TV. And it's unusual because it, well, it's unusual because it's a comedy on ITV, which is quite unusual. Uh, and it's a kind of mainstream gay comedy. When was the last one? Go, gimme, gimme, gimme. Was that, was did that, that push boundaries or reinforce stereotypes? That was BBC Two, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, it's the same can be said for this one, actually. With Is it reinforced stereotypes? Probably. Um, but the... I think they'll do well. Is it funny? It's, it's broad. It's not my kind of funny. I can see that it'll be everyone else's kind of funny. Broad it is. It's broad is a nice way to put it. One line sticks in my mind. No spoilers, obviously, but this I don't think will spoil your enjoyment. Is uh, uh, They're trying to work out if their new neighbour is gay. And he says, oh, it's so hard to tell these days. I thought Graham Norton was straight. Cue eruption of laughter from the studio audience. Well, that's, that's, the that's, studio audience. that's the standard. But it's... If you like that, you'll love Vicious. And the working title was Vicious Old Queens, which I think is probably a bit of a better title. Maybe, yeah. yeah. So star, yeah. Mark, marks out of five? I'm giving uh, it two. 2.5. 2.5, right. The charm of the leads. Right, yes, McKellen's very funny. I think yeah. his character's a lot more appealing than um, Derek Jacoby. Yeah, he's, he's, he has the control in the relationship. He's uh, the boss. It's a lot funnier if you think he's still playing Gandalf. <laughs> Yeah, see, I just, you just got to laugh at that, so that's yeah. probably the funniest thing about it, yeah. Excellent. I kept expecting him to, or wishing he'd sort of whip his hat out and grow to three times his normal size and let off a few uh, whiz-bombs, whatever they were called. Now, that's Broad, and Broad Church uh, finished oh, on ITV good. this week. Yeah. Very good. And it put ITV back on the map. Yeah, um, this, this whole trend of, you know, the Scandi crime dramas is now translating on British TV. So we've got Broad Church, which has obviously done brilliantly well and is back for a second season. And then the BBC are filming something called Hinterland in Wales, which treads on similar territory, but, you know, we won't sort of spoil that. And The Fall on BBC Two, is that Gillian Anderson? Yeah? That is Gillian Anderson. Uh, it's supposed to be terrifying, much in the way that these Nordic crime dramas are. So, yes. Psychological thriller. Yeah, no more of these, you know, average police procedurals. We just want darkness and death and grim horror from our Sunday nights, apparently. Broadchurch, yeah, it was a, it was a, a funny ending. It was a, well, the last episode, um, now this is an unusual situation of me talking about a show I've seen, but uh, in the sense that they revealed the killer uh, sort of 10 minutes into the final episode and the, and the rest of the rest of the show was just sort of, you know, mopping up the loose ends and, and taking the reaction. And so, uh, but, you know, you can't argue with 10 million viewers. Uh, and the review show oh, used to be on yes. BBC Two. Yeah, it's Friday dying. nights, every week. Now it's back, BBC Four, once a month. 
And but lost, where did the audience go? Well, 80% of it disappeared. So viewing figures went from, I think, 376,000 to 80,000. And it was a really scrappy episode of the last one that they actually did. It was, um, it was quite desperate where everyone's just scrapping and talking over each other, which they usually do on a review show, but it felt particularly unhinged in, in the last show. Kind of confirmed everyone's worst fears. That uh, I mean, it's great that it's been given a primetime slot on Sunday night, but, you know, the, and BBC Four, you know, gets half-decent audiences. But, you know, to take this kind of tumble, you kind of worry that, you know, eventually it's just going to disappear for good. I mean, I'm sure they'll say that it's the quality and not the quantity of audience. Uh, Feel but the catch-up viewing. Yeah, but it's is that so true? I mean, that Friday night spot and the fact that the, it's supposed to bring culture to... Well, I say the masses. It's supposed to make it more accessible, and it's just gone into a further niche, into a little corner where it's dying a death. Well, let's hope it gets more uh, ratings next week, um, next month. And this week also saw the quiet return of Channel 4's 10 O'Clock Live. Yeah, no, this was good. They didn't really hype it this time. And for that reason, it's actually, it's allowed to sort of go on and do its thing without too much pressure. And it did it very, very well last night. It was really, really funny. Brooke was excellent. I mean, all four of them are still sort of gelling, sort of getting it together, but they each managed to actually have their own spot and, you know, be entertaining. That's the problem, isn't it? It kind of feels like it's not the sum of its parts sometimes. They still haven't quite worked out how to use these kind of big four personalities. Yeah, I mean, that's the argument that's often made, that, oh, you know, Laverne isn't given much to do and, you know, car skits don't work. But when it does work, it really, really does. And, you know, she knows that she's not a comedian, Lauren Laverne, and... She does host and rein them in together, and she does it well. And Jimmy Carr addressed his uh, unfortunate tax issues. Was that he right? Did. did he did he grapple he with the elephant tax. in the room? avoids tax. Yeah, no, he did it very well, and then he deflected attention onto Cameron commenting on affairs that he shouldn't really be interested in. I think Suarez was that the uh, the Cameron line something about something obviously about biting being bad. What else would he say? And uh, finally this week, uh, film. Oh no, that's his surname. A uh, love film uh, following in the footsteps of Netflix. It says here. Uh, well, it's actually Amazon, Amazon Studios, who have mm. this amazing amount of money. Um, they own, and they own, they own Love Film, yeah. they own Love Film. Just and to point out, I'm not entirely incorrect with my introduction, but carry on, yeah. Um, and they've released uh, 14 pilots, I believe it is, this week for viewers to go off and have a watch of, review it Amazon Star with star ratings and comment. And that transparent process will pretty much end up in having a couple of these shows commissioned into full series, like how pilot season works. And there are two shows that look very good. One is A New News Empire, Jeffrey Tambor. Oh, Jeffrey yeah, Tambor. Yeah, it's a spoof of um, Newsroom. Yeah, hey now. Um, it's very good. It's funny. And um, it's likely to be the one that sort of runs away and makes this their house of cards, but with comedy. And what's that called again? It's called Onion News Empire. A new news empire. Onion. Oh, onion. <laughs> onion, as in related oh, to I onion, beg your the pastor. onion. Right. Oh, is it, is it a spin-off on The Onion, is it? Yes, yeah. Well, I'm catching up. It's good. Uh, so that's one of them. And the other one was? And uh, this one looks promising. It's a slightly bizarre premise. John Goodman plays a Republican senator in a house share with four of the senators in... And it's called Alpha House. Um, onion House? So alpha, Alpha. Alpha House, Definitely sorry. Alpha. Yeah. It has potential, although it could also crash horribly. But, I mean, he's got so much charisma, you think he'd carry it on his own. And these are available free to air, are they? Or do you pay for these? No, you're free, totally free to stream it and, yeah, put your star ratings underneath. I just find that really curious. It's like watching YouTube, but then producers are taking all this stuff seriously. So I would slag it off if I hadn't earlier asked you to give um, vicious marks out of five. (laughs) I would be hugely uh, condemnatory. Arbitrary ratings, uh, it's, it's where we're at. 
Well, that's right. Yes. Well, interesting. Okay. So, um, an interesting move on the part of um, of Amazon there to kind of well, everyone's moving into production these days. It seems. Yeah, future of TV. It's all changing. Um, they have the money, basically. And I do wonder whether the shows are actually going to be eventually put on, you know, terrestrial TV. But um, yeah, we'll see. Okay. Well, Noshin, thank you very much. That's it for today. My thanks to all my guests, Lisa Campbell, Sam Delaney, Lisa O'Carroll and Noshin Iqbal. My name is John Plunkett and Media Talk is produced by Matt Hill. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.